Well, I thank you very much, Tuli, for the introduction and for the prayers. I also want to thank Melissa and the Tyndall Singers and the instrumentalists for the spectacular music. It really was. I found myself gasping at times. Thank you very, very much. And by the way, I just, I just came from the second century. I spent uh, the last three hours in the second century, and so if I slip a cog from time to time, please forgive me. Uh, I'll try to adjust. And in fact, all we're really doing is looping, leaping forward about uh, 1,500 years. And in fact, what we've got as we start off is the picture of a millennial in jail. Now, it's happened before and it will happen still. But this particular millennial is a guy by the name of John Frith. He is in jail in London, England. He's in actually the Tower of London, and things don't look too good for him. He was a, a devoted associate of William Tyndall. He, uh, Frith and his wife had traveled to, to Belgium where they were working with Tyndall. It was decided between Tyndall and, and Frith that he should go back to England and should spend a little while trying to figure out what was going on there. So T Frith did that. He was about to leave. He was on the seacoast waiting for the ship. He was arrested. He was brought to London, he was investigated, and he was sentenced to, to death by burning. A millennial, 30 years old. He had refused to deny his, his faith in Christ and in his support for Tyndall's work, and now he was paying the consequences. Tyndall heard that he was in jail, and so he wrote him a letter. And in the letter, he is trying to encourage him for what he knows, what Tyndall knows he's going to go through. And he says, look, you're not alone. Um, there are all kinds of people right now who are going through exactly the same sort of thing that, that you are. And then he says, and I'm quoting, if pain be above your strength, remember, whatsoever you shall ask in my name, I will give it you. And pray to your father in that name, and he shall cease your pain or shorten it. He's talking to a man who's going to be burned alive. And then he goes on a little farther in the letter and says a few more things. And then right at the end of the letter, he adds a note that really jerked my heart. He says, Sir, your wife is well content with the will of God and would not for her sake have the glory of God hindered. So here's this man's wife, and she's over there in Belgium in relative safety. And she wants a message sent to your, her husband. Go ahead and experience whatever happens. It is for God's glory. And I wouldn't want you to back out for me. Well, what's going on here? Well, in fact... These people are living at a particular period in the history of England. It is dangerous and demanding, to put it very mildly. Mildly, the ideas of Martin Luther and others are penetrating England. They've come down the Cam River and they're being brought over into, into London by, by uh, merchants. Uh, the, 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 the teachings of, tind of, these, of these people, of uh, Zwingli and Luther and others, is, is becoming embedded in the lives of individuals, and they're hearing the message that the just shall live by faith. And what they're hearing is a call to open their lives to God and let God become their God and their king. 
And so Henry VIII, the king, about whom you know a lot, I'm sure, he, he, he doesn't like what's happening. He's, he's unpleased with this. And, and his displeasure relates to the fact that he is trying to define, defend the Catholic Church. Strangely enough, that's what he's trying to do. He sees himself as a good Catholic. And so he hears these ideas circulating, and he, he, he wants to put in place a plan that is going to protect the spiritual life of his realm. But that's not all he's doing. He's also trying to solve a particular succession problem. He is married to Catherine of Aragon, who has not yet produced a male heir, and it's all her fault. And in order to deal with the problem, what he's got to do is get rid of her as fast as possible. And so he's looking for a, a means of divorcing her, but it's a huge step. The Pope's not going to be before it. The Roman Emperor isn't going to be before it. King of France isn't going to be in behind it. And so he's trying to do something that is absolutely radical. And then on top of that, he has political problems. The problems are with France and the problems are with Scotland and he hasn't been managing his finances well and his kingdom's almost bankrupt. And so he's got a huge of problem, difficulties that he's facing. And it's in the midst of all of that that Frith and Tyndall land. Well, what happens to Frith is that he is burned at the stake. Well, William Tyndall had been making some very strong decisions. He was born in 1494. He was born to a powerful family. He went to Oxford University from 1506 to 1516. And somewhere in there, and we don't know exactly where, he came to faith in Christ. He came to understand that Luther's emphasis upon justification by faith was correct, and he embraced it. And then somewhere in the early 1520s, again, we don't know exactly when, he decided to translate the Bible into English. It had been done before, but the translation was from a Latin text into English. He wanted to translate from the original text, the Greek and Hebrew. And so that began to occupy his attention. He began to talk about this. He'd been ordained a priest, and he associated with some of those. But what began to happen is, as he talked about it, it became obvious that he was facing a problem. In 1229, translations into the vernacular had been forbidden, and that had, that had been repeated in England in 1409. So when he starts talking about doing a translation, he is doing, some, doing something that is, that is violating the policy of the Roman Catholic Church. And so he talks about some of the things that were happening. People were becoming disturbed by him. He said, the priests around me, they do all their preaching in the pubs, and I'm quoting him. And he's suggesting they're not great. And they're criticizing him for the, for the kind of work that he wants to do. They, they, they rat on him. They tell the head of the church in the area that, that Tyndall's trying to do a translation. And this guy drags him in for an interrogation. And Tyndall says, he threatened me grievously and reviled me and rated me as though I were a dog. So people were becoming upset with what he was doing. I'm calling him William Tyndall the Disturber. Well, the circle of disturbance grew. He went to the, the Bishop of, of London, uh, Cuthbert Tunstall, and asked him if, if he would fund him while he translated the New Testament. It was a good idea. Tyndall, uh, Tyndall was, a, was a scholar himself. But Tyndall never saw the man. 
And the message he got back was something like, you're not in the budget. I can't afford you. Get somebody else to support you. So he goes, he goes to the continent. He goes to Cologne, then to Worms. And what comes out of it in 1535 is the first translation in, of the New Testament in, uh, from the original uh, language, from Greek. Then something like 3,000 copies, perhaps 6,000, the number varies from de- depending on whom you're listening to, are smuggled into England in, in bales of cotton and, and, other, uh, and other goods. So now we've got the English text back. It's in England. And all hell breaks loose. You know, when Henry hears of it, the response is wild. And he ordered his people to get on it and get control of this guy. He writes, he writes the authorities in, in Belgium and says, find him, stop him. You know, he's creating havoc in our kingdom. So he does that. The, the people begin to be arrested just for the possession of Scripture. Not only arrested, but burned at the stake. The bishop, Tunstall, whom, whom Tyndall tried to talk to, bought as many of them as he could spent thousands of pounds on it and then had them all burned because he didn't want anybody else to read them. So Tyndall's back in Belgium. He's keeping on doing his work. He was arrested and imprisoned on May the 22nd, 1535. He spent a year and a half in that prison. The conditions in which he lived were terrible. For the first 12 months, there was no heat in the building, there was no light, there were no books, and he had very few clothes. Think about that. You're in solitary, and you're not eating well, you can't dress well, there's no heat in the room, it gets cold in in the winter there, and there's no light. And in addition to that, he was harassed over and over again by theologians and bishops who wanted to discuss theology with him and try to get him to back away from what he was, what he was, was doing. Our namesake, but a disturber. He was upsetting a lot of people. Well, the more I got to know this guy, the more interesting he became. And I I really began to feel that I wanted to meet him. And there's a little problem, of course, because he's been dead a long time. And so what I was looking for, and thanks to the library staff, what I was looking for were papers in which he he spoke. Not somebody spoke about him, but papers in which he spoke. And so I was looking at letters and prologues and commentaries. And there I was, sitting comfortably in my little study, looking over my wife's beautiful garden. And this guy is disturbing me. So you heard the passage read. You see, what I was looking for was a passage somewhere where where I could hear Tyndall and I could listen to him deal with the scriptures and then I could come with you and, and, and come with you before you and join you in listening to Tyndall as he dealt with the material. And I found the passage. It was the passage that you heard read. And so the question was, how will he handle it? Well, the way I approach it, I'm taking some of the, the, the material at the end before the others. And so what we hear here is a mission. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So what is our salt and light? 
What do we do? What do you do? What do I do as we, as we salt and light our world? And what we all do is different. We have different backgrounds and different interests and so on, and God uses us in different ways. For Tyndall, being salt and light meant making the Bible accessible in English as soon as he possibly could. We don't know when he felt the call to do that, but feel it, he did. And when he, when he talked about why he did it, he said, one thing only moved me to translate the New Testament. And when he develops what that one thing was, it was the difficulty ordinary people had to get their hands on the New Testament and to read it in their mother tongue. He wanted people to be able to hear the voice of God and to hear it directly without being, without being brought to them through others. The standard he pursued was remarkable. He said, I want to produce the best possible translation of the Hebrew and the Greek, and I want to make the most sense possible so that people can read the, read the Bible and be gripped by it. He worked doggedly. He worked in extraordinarily difficult circumstances. The whole time he was in Belgium, he was being hunted. He never knew when somebody who wanted to take him out for coffee was going to betray him. He was working in difficult circumstances. He was building up huge debt dependent upon some of the English merchants to help him, help him carry it. And, but he carried on. And in his carrying on, he's a challenge for us. He compels us to look at ourselves. He really compels us in the midst of our activities to take a moment and ask ourselves, in what respect am I salt and light? What is God asking me to do to make an impact in this world? Tyndall said some disturbing things about this salt and light. He said the nature of salt is to bite, fret, smart. And then he said that kind of, quote, salting stirreth up persecution. I mean, he understood that in the, the starkest possible terms. He knew if he did what he felt compelled to do, his life was on the line. He knew that people would be irritated profoundly. And I would suggest to you that we are increasingly living in a culture which has decreasing patience for Christianity and for Christians. And how that is going to play out remains to be seen. Well, I come on to the, the earlier part because it flows out of what I have just quoted Tyndall as saying. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you on my account. Jesus speaking. Tyndall was burned at the stake 
He was given the comfort of having been strangled before he was burned. But he knew that was ahead of him. He said, we are called to die with Christ that we may live with him and to suffer with him that we may live with him. We are called unto a kingdom that may be won by suffering only. What kind of an opinion is that? I mean, those aren't the words I want to hear particularly. But he goes on, whom God chooseth to reign everlasting with Christ, him sealeth he with his mighty spirit and poureth strength into his heart to suffer afflictions also with Christ, forbearing witnesses unto the truth. And what was going to happen? If we be like Christ here in his passions and bear his image in soul and body and fight manfully with Satan, blot it not out, and suffer with Christ for bearing a record to righteousness, then shall we be like him in glory. So here is Tyndall who knows he's going to be burned at the stake, who spends the last five or so months of his life among enemies, who has been living in torment. He is degraded as a priest. This was a wretched ceremony where they took the priest into a church and they dressed him in the vestments and then they took the vestments off one by one, announcing curses against him because he had violated his, his oaths of ordination. He knew that was coming. And he was determined that whatever God sent his way, he was going to experience it if it meant that he could bear witness to the Jesus Christ who saved his soul and call others into the life of faith that brings them freedom. Am I? Are you ready for this? So when I look at this man, he's an interesting historical figure by all means. But what we see in him is this determination to carry through on what God has called him to, regardless of the consequences. And that call is extended to each one of us in whatever we do in our lives day by day. So here's William Tyndall, this remarkable follower of Jesus Christ. He challenged the assumptions of his age profoundly and directly. He disturbed the peace of many. But he was determined. 
to carry through. And I have to say, that certainly challenges and disturbs me. Please bow with me in prayer. Father, we have been focusing our attention of one of our brothers who has gone before. And we earnestly and honestly thank you, God, for the richness of this life that was lived and for the unmeasurable influence that life has had. Thank you, Father. But, Father, I would pray for all of us in this room. You know us, Lord. You know what is occupying our attention. You know what we're good at. You know what we're interested in. You know what we're employed for. God, live in us and live through us, Lord. Might people see and sense the life of Jesus in us, that they might be called to the richness of your kingdom. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand? And now may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and your minds in the knowledge and love of God and of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be among us and remain with us always. Amen. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.